Hello and welcome to Euractiv's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. I'm Julia Dam. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's Agri-Food News team. So I think it's safe to say that the flavour again of this week, the, the issue that's not going away anytime soon is, of course... I thought you were you were you wanted to start from the flavor of the week, you know, doing the, <laughs> no. the other way around. It's a different kind of flavor of the week. It's not really flavor of the week, more flavor of the month. Because Yulia wasn't red, you know. So uh, <laughs> she was a big standard me, her on her toes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So no, 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 no. We're talking about the What are we, what are we talking about here? Food security. Food security. Okay. okay Cross okay. food security. <laughs> Uh, the big issue on everyone's lips everyone's still talking about do we have enough food are we run out of food there's a lot of very inflammatory headlines going around a lot of panic a lot of a lot of concern from a lot of different people i'd say continuing on food security this week and of course this has also led to ever-increasing calls for a reconsideration of the eu's flagship food and farming policy the farm to fork strategy um which is not about food security which is not about food security. Uh, technically, yes. It's about sustainability and viability, which you can argue, you know, you can't have food security without sustainability and viability of the sector. So the two kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, it's true. Which leads me very nicely. That was a great segue. I know, I know. It's almost like I planned it. <laughs> I know. Um, into uh, actually just this week, just now actually, um, Commissioner Sela Kiriakidis, she was addressing MEPs in the uh, European Parliament's Agri Committee and she was saying exactly that. She was saying we've pressed pause on uh, on the farm to fork strategy for the minute and she was defending the decision to do that, to take some short-term um, measures to kind of deal with food security in the short term and we'll get on to that in a minute. But she was saying that overall, the level of ambition of the farm to fork strategy isn't changed. You know, she was saying that um, that she's committed, the, the, the commission is committed to this transition, and actually, the war has actually shown the need to move forward with the system even more resilient to shocks. Um, you know, she's basically saying you need to have one eye on the present and one eye on the future, and we need to look look ahead and um, and continue with the sustainability ambitions of the farm to fork strategy. It's a, it's a funny fact, actually. Um, okay, first funny fact. Oh no, yeah. he's smiling. This, like, what are you about to say? Sela <laughs> Kiriakides is yeah. the Commissioner for Health yes. and Food Safety. Indeed. And actually, if you translate in Italian, is the, is the, because there's no difference between safety and food security. Ah. She's the Commissioner for Food Security in Italian. That's actually quite confusing. Yeah, it, works, it works the same way in German, actually. Uh, Wouldn't it be the same in French as well? Probably. Yeah, I guess. Um, so, yeah, so basically, she's, I mean, who better than, than <laughs> food security in Italian? She's the best one to talk about. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but. I know it's difficult to continue after this uh, remark. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing remark from you. Yeah, yeah I'm still shocked. <laughs> Yeah, listen to that shock. Um, no, I was going to say, but of course, maybe while, you know, there's still a lot of questions about how far these promises will actually go, how much the commission is just kind of starting to pay lip service to the, to the farm to fork, because we've also seen, you know, the first 
signs of weakening of some of the environmental ambitions of the Farm to Fork strategy. We've had a couple of derogations. Um, I think we spoke about this last week on the podcast. Did we speak about it last week? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, of course, here I'm talking about the derogations from, uh, you know, allowing farmers to plant crops on ecological focus areas. There's also been a lot of discussion this week about the potential granting of a derogation of the nitrates um, directive. Um, and that's basically to, to ease the pressure to do with the rising fertilizer prices, which is a direct consequence of the war in Ukraine. So um, there's a, a push from from member states, actually from the Dutch delegation put forward this push, um, but it was backed by many member states. Um, and it's the fifth attempt by the Dutch delegation. It's true. It's true. No, I, 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 it's not but the But this fifth, time with a new angle. Yeah. yeah this time yeah. they've got a new, it's, um, a new argument. Everyone's trying back their case again but uh with this new with this new tool this new argument behind yeah it's it. like getting a new superpower you know it's yeah, like giving yeah, a new yeah. a new flavor another flavor um but yeah so the idea being that they that they would like to see the rules eased on using nitrates to allow more processed manure to be used in sensitive and even polluted areas um so that but that would require a derogation of this nitrates directive which um, aims to protect water quality in Europe by preventing nitrates from agricultural sources, uh, from like leaking into groundwater, um, and also promoting good farming practices. Um, but there's also some interesting, other interesting fertilizer. 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 Yeah. Um, Julia, tell us what's going going on in Germany when it comes to fertilizer. Yeah, so I mean, we've we've heard about how for farmers it's quite tough this rise in prices of uh, fertilizers, especially mineral mineral fertilizers, which the EU imports in large parts from uh, Belarus, and which are now sanctioned. Um, but actually, this has given a boost to German fertilizer producers. So here are some people who are actually very lucky about uh, the current situation. Um, because um, Germany is actually the EU's biggest producer of uh, mineral fertilizer, specifically potash. Um, and uh, obviously now that all the imports from Belarus uh, are embargoed, it's kind of stepping up to, to cater to European demand. And you can already see this because uh, the main producer, the dominant producer so far, which is KNS, it's a subsidiary of uh, BASF, so the chemical giant, um, is uh, actually really benefiting from these current developments. They've uh, raised their um, uh, their uh, economic expectations for this year multiple times during the past months, um, and are ex actually expecting uh, record numbers this year, even despite rising energy prices, despite the crisis and everything. Just They're because testing in from this situation, uh -huh. yeah, just because fertilizer prices are rising so much and because there's so much less fertilizer on the market now that Belarus is sanctioned. And um, so they're really profiting. But of course, at current levels, Germany can't uh, step in for all of the the additional demand that's not catered to in Europe at the moment. But people are already kind of seeing this and kind of trying to uh, dig into it economically. Um, so a new company, which hasn't been on the market so far, an Australian company, has actually started uh, with some exploratory drillings in, in eastern Germany, where most of the potash, uh, uh, potash is. And um, 
So they're actually opening up new or they're or re-exploring old mines. Like what's they're exploring new uh, new potential uh, new potential stocks of potassium in the region that haven't been explored so far. Um, hmm. So they're looking to actually expand production in the region altogether. Which throws up all kinds of environmental concerns, presumably, um, for the region. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, already, environmentalists aren't super happy with uh, the company who's already there and the mines they already have. And there have been long-standing conflicts in the region, uh, so much so that the, the regional government actually had to put into place uh, a commission to work on this. And now they've come up with a whole plan that um, the company now also has agreed to to avoid salination of the rivers because this is one of the main problems that because of the waste of this potash production um basically has too much salt in the nearby rivers so environmentalists are very concerned about this um, and they doubt that the new company will be able to do their drillings and production in a way that will be uh compatible with environment concerns mm. And um, this was actually the main, the topic of an article that Julia uh, wrote this week. You definitely check that out. Check. Don't okay. you think though? Actually, just on the I'm about to say something stupid as well. You can see it on my face. That this I should have written about this potash. My name's in the in the <laughs> in the word. Sharada could not look less no, impressed. No, 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 no. no, no. It's that. It's actually, I mean, probably it's new for um, our listeners, but actually, it's a very old joke that we de- we are doing. What's that? So, no, the the potash stuff. We say this since the beginning. <laughs> yeah, we have so you, you're sending to our listeners. <laughs> like, I'm pretending to be funny. I'm probably the author of this joke. So, um, this is like the farm to pitchfork. Uh, oh no, we don't bring that. We can't argue like this on the podcast. Anyway, about the time you, about the time that Gerardo, just in case you're not sure, about the time Gerardo stole my joke and put it in a headline and then took credit for it. This is a, anyway, this is no a comment. Huge lie. Um, Move on. No, this article is also included in a special report uh, that we've we've published on uh, Euractive France, our um, um, the office, the Euractive office in Paris. Um, don't worry, uh, all the articles are also in English or uh, in German too, and uh, you can check on our website. And speaking of lies, uh, speaking of lies, <laughs> that was a strong start. Speaking of lies and food security, and um, no, I'm joking, of course. Um, <laughs> you remember the promise of the European Commission? Which one? Actually, from Stella Kiriakides. Oh, she's coming off a lot today, isn't she? And yeah. Um, Agrifish Council last Monday. Uh, she said that the Commission would have presented the... Uh, actually, I don't remember if it was... Kiriakides, probably it was Kiriakides. No, it was Kiriakides in, in Prague. I know what you're talking about now. Ah, no, no, she's in Prague, yeah. yeah so Kiriakides, one of the Indiagrifish Council, was last week yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when she was speech. in Prague, um, that uh, the commission would have presented the uh, uh, SUR, that uh, is no longer directive, it's regulation, 
Um, so the explain that. US pesticide framework. Um, mm, which we were expecting on the 23rd of March. Yeah. And then it, it was didn't postponed. get postponed. We can't use the word postponed because you can't. Yeah. We can't. We're not allowed to call a space. But a now they admitted that uh, they, they put on pause. They did say deferred. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, completely different, of course. Potato, potato, you know what I'm saying? But potash, anyway. potash. It's. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um... <laughs> And That's basically, terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, but everyone is laughing. <laughs> oh, um, anyway. They say, they promised that they would have presented this important revision of the use pesticide framework before summer. Mm. But according to the latest agenda of the commission, mm. it is expected to be unveiled on the 22nd of June, <gasps> which is one day after the beginning of summer. It's the second day imagine, of summer. So. Imagine. It's That's shocking. It's true that in EU jargon, before summer means before the break, uh, so the before August. But, uh, you know, words are important. And uh, Yeah, yeah. Coming from a journalist, words are very, very important. Uh, actually, Tash, you, you had the opportunity to have a look at the latest. I did. Uh, so did you, actually. <laughs> we both did. We both had a good little, a good little look. Uh, the latest draft of the... Because... You probably remember we already published uh, a leak on uh, the PCA directive when mm -hmm. it was supposed to be presented on the 21st of March. And uh, and there are some tiny changes. Yeah, it, it looks quite visually different. Like mm. it's set out quite differently and it's like longer and there's lots of bullet points and things like that. But in terms of substance, I, did, you know, I, I would say the main difference is in... Um, the way that national member states um, are, are supposed to set their own individual targets. It's become a lot more convoluted in this latest draft. And it's talking about, you know, if they want to set it at this, then we can talk about this. And if they don't do that, then we get it. There's all these kind of like, I almost feel like I need one of those diagrams, you know, mm. where it says like, are you setting your pesticides thing at above 40? Yes, no. Then yeah, So, you yeah. know, like you could do like a kind of chart like that. Um, so that I think is the main the main difference I see, um, there's still the, you know, they still want to make a legally binding um, objective um, at the, the EU, like an EU-wide binding objective. Um, there was um, a slight drop, wasn't there? In, um, in Yeah, from 45 to, okay, just to explain, um, because I, we've realized that we have a lot of uh, listeners that are starting with, in the, you know, starting moving the first step in the, agri-food world. So just to explain briefly, there was in the farm to first strategy, so again, the general framework of, uh, of the uh, sustainability policy in farming and, and in food, there was the, the ambition, the political ambition of uh, um, slashing uh, pesticide risk and uh, use by half, basically, 50%. And uh, and this is basically the legislation through which they're gonna put into for into legislation, of course, uh, this um, ambition, this political ambition. So there's still the fifty percent of reduction. Uh, there are actually two targets at European level: uh, one for the risk and one for the use. But technically, the most important uh, target is the one that you set at the national level, 
because of course this is uh, an average you know the the eu target is uh, is basically you have also countries that could do more than 50% and um, and basically uh considering all the factors and index and so on member state could actually um through this new pesticide reduction plan um could present um a reduction uh, a target that cannot be less than 40% mm-hmm. and in the previous uh, draft it was for, uh, 45% so it's already and also there are some there are very complicated derogations uh, that in the last uh, draft, I mean, after the derogation, you couldn't go below 25% in the previous draft. Derogation needs to be approved by the commission and so on. At the moment, we don't know the lowest bar where they set it because it's super complicated, uh, as Tash was saying. Mm. Um, but again, it's... it's um, it's still a draft, eh? so it's uh, yeah, of course. And uh, you know, um, there are I also. Think there's still a lot to play for mm. in the, a lot of wiggle room. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw. Yeah. I mean, considering it's going to be between now, we're still in March. Just yeah. um, we, we and, just started spring. <laughs> yeah, there's months. Al- to... Although it, uh, tomorrow is snowing in Brazil. Yeah, it doesn't feel like spring, but anyway. Um, but yeah, this is going to probably be plenty of. Yeah, 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 leaked versions to come, so we'll definitely keep you posted. Um, yeah, yeah, Julia, don't feel excluded. We, we're gonna share with you the leak. Uh, oh, thanks, it's so sweet of you. Yeah, it's a nice bedtime reading for you. Yeah, and um, lastly, um, another big thing this week uh, was the um, announcement of the revision of the geographical indication framework. So, geographical indications are basically the EU's quality scheme, uh, you know, all the, it's the reason why only the grapes uh, grown in the Champagne region could actually become Champagne. Um, so it's, it's, it's a serious thing. It's actually bringing a lot of um, uh, added value. I, I like to say that the geographic indication is a bit like uh, Erasmus, but the other food... Uh, the agri-food version, not, not because uh, it's about uh, mobility, but it's uh, it's because uh, it's a, it's an added value to the European products. Mm-hmm. See? <laughs> but, like, Propaganda for the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there was the this very much awaited um, reform, uh, which, by the way, it's not a revolution. Uh, this is uh, one thing that the Commission, uh, in presenting before MEPs, uh, this reform uh, insisted on. So it's it's not, you know, it's, it's not, a, we're not talking about radical changes, but uh, merely administrative changes. It's true that we can also say that the entire CAP reform is about <laughs> tiny administrative changes because actually legal schemes, for instance, it's an admi- administrative change. So, yeah, uh, but with a big impact. I still think if you frame it like the greening of the cap, eco scheme becomes something political. But in the end, eco schemes are basically administrative changes. Like I, I give less or I give more money if you do certain stuff on a voluntary basis, purely administrative. Yeah, but sure, but it, it translates to a, an impact on the ground. Yeah, yeah, but it's not like uh, money. Money talks. Eh, no, 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 no. Okay, but yes, yeah, it's, it's still uh, it's just 
to show how administrative changes could actually be mm, very uh, like for oh, instance. I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because you were distracted, you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's why. Um, so there are. Uh, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to be. No, I'm just trying to follow your like convoluted <laughs> thought path, which is what I spent all my time doing. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be <laughs> quick uh, so that uh, people could um, keep their attention. Uh, <laughs> there are tre- in the, tre- three interesting stuff um, in the geographic indication reform. The first one, it's uh, um, clearly um, an increased protection, for example, when it comes to the um, online sales, so also an, a protection through the internet, and uh, some uh, more focus on uh, sustainability aspects. There's this... Uh, a concept of green criteria in in granting uh, uh, geographic indication. This is not particularly welcomed by by consortia and other and other um, you know companies and uh, and so on and and, and GI holder um, GI holder basically. Uh, the other interesting uh, aspect is the. Um, this um, operation of giving more power to the EU's intellectual property office, which is an, uh, a new agency based in Alicante, in Spain, uh, and with the depowering of the Giagri, again, another thing that is not uh, particularly appreciated, uh, because of course the Giagri... Just because you got the scoop on this. Yeah. No, 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 no. Like no, people I don't mean, appreciate this. Yeah, no, no. It's uh, yeah, it's true that actually you n- already know about that. It was a top story of um, a brief uh, some months ago. So you probably have super are super expert of this. Uh, uh, what happened with this uh, UIPO and the DG Agri confrontation? And the third aspect, it's a, f- mm, a particular interpretation of the concept of ev- of evocation. The concept of evocation is one of the most powerful tools that the GI holders uh, have. So it's basically just to make an example, uh, the Champagne UK. So this uh, um, this uh, it's basically a bar. It's basically a uh, a kind of restaurant, a franchising called Champaniglio that uh, not, ev- not even sell uh, champagne and uh, it cannot use the word Champaniglio for its brand because it evoke um, the champagne. So uh, according to some, uh, um, even the driving indication uh, lobby, you know, all the producer of uh, GIs, uh, this evocation might be, uh, the concept of evocation might be um, depowered, let's say, uh, which will basically weaken the role of producer groups and uh, and uh, actors actually developing this, uh, uh, these products, you know? So, um, again, it's uh, it's just started. There was a presentation of the commission. Now they're going to be... Um, of course, uh, um, the confrontation between the lawmakers, uh, the rapporteur at the European Parliament is Paolo De Castro, socialist MEP, uh, quite vocal in favor of 
let's say, that, because I mean, the problem here is the status quo, no? I mean, the, the, there are some uh, GI producers and uh, uh, the, uh, the Agri Committee, the parliament, they're quite uh, in favor of uh, keeping the state status quo and recognize the differences between the GIs and IP, intellectual property, other, you know, patents and all this kind of stuff. So this is mostly what will be, um, you know, the topics of discussion at the trilogue, at the, yeah, the interinstitutional negotiation level. So the, let's stay tuned. And uh, This is one of your pet, uh, yeah, your pet subjects, so not to worry, Gerardo, we'll definitely bring you updates on this. So for this week's interview, we spoke with Olivia Deschuta, who is the uh, co-chair of IPES Food, which in case you don't know, is the international panel of experts on sustainable food systems. And Olivia was also the former UN Special Rapporteur on the right to food and is now the UN Special Rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights. So we spoke to him a bit about the food prices, the crisis in Ukraine, and here's what he had to say. Since the Ukraine war has broken out, everyone has been talking about food security. Food security is on everyone's lips. But of course, we're hearing from the Commission that the issue is not necessarily food security, but more afford, uh, food affordability. So perhaps you could just kick us off with a comment about your view on what the real risk here is um, to do with the Ukraine war. Indeed, the harvests in 2020 and 2021 were excellent and the stocks therefore have been replenished at the time and there is no fear of scarcity, certainly not in Europe. However, as a result of the conflict, certain supply chains have been disrupted and some countries who are heavily dependent on cereals imports from Ukraine and Russia that together represent one third of total um, wheat exports on global markets uh, Ukraine is the most important exporter of vegetable oils. Those countries are significantly impacted and all countries are impacted by increased prices of food commodities resulting from high energy prices. And that is really the, the structural problem behind the crisis we are seeing. Mm. Uh, so uh, this morning, uh, the, health, the Food Safety Commission uh, said that the farm to strategy to use flagship policy on sustainable food system is on pause. Um, there's also that there, there has been uh, some measures from the Commission uh, more focused on productivity. Do you think that this push on productivity could actually affect the uh, sustainability goals uh, uh, when it comes to uh, greening farming in Europe? The Commission is divided uh, on this issue. Franz Timmermans in mid-March uh, did reaffirm the farm-to-fork strategy as setting the targets that the Commission should keep in mind. But it is true that the Commission made certain important concessions to those who call on immediate um, increases in production. The most significant of these concessions was um, the authorization to cultivate land that was meant to be uh, preserved for biodiversity purposes. This concerns no less than 4 million hectares across Europe. That represents the surface of a country such as uh, the Netherlands or the equivalent of the uh, arable surface of a country such as the Czech Republic. So it is very significant and it is um, very problematic um, that uh, this concession has been made because, of course, um, one key reason why the food prices have gone up is because we have a food system that is heavily dependent on, on fossil energies. And 
boosting production by relying on the same agronomic techniques that require large amounts of inputs from um, uh, chemical fertilizers and, and pesticides, in other terms from gas and petrol, is very problematic. And, and doing this is only, only going to reinforce our dependency on fossil energies for food production, which is at the heart of the current price increases. Just to follow up on this uh, uh, concession aspect, uh, because it's true that, for instance, in the farm to fork strategy itself, there are a lot of solutions uh, to the current crisis. I mean, uh, relying less on fertilizer, for instance, it's, uh, it's in the farm to fork strategy, and it's also one of the uh, current problems at the moment with the uh, import of potash from Belarus and so on. Uh, do you think that these concessions could actually be uh, crystallized, established, and undermining uh, the fact that um, the, the long-term solution included in the farm to fork strategy? That is the danger. I think it's um, tempting to see the current inflation of prices as a result of a mismatch between supply and demand. But in fact, it is a problem of um, disrupted supply chains. It is a problem of linkages between the market for energy and the market for food commodities. And it is therefore a problem of resilience of food systems that are not well um, designed to support shocks, um, whether geopolitical, economic, or, or linked to the volatility of energy prices. So I think it's a miss. Um, it's a, it's a wrong diagnosis about the crisis to see it as a problem of production or insufficient supply. Moreover, you cannot discuss the question of the tension between supply and demand without also considering demand. And we dedicate a significant part of cereal production to feeding animals. We set aside a significant part of our production of oils to produce agrofuels. Um, from uh, sugar beet in, in France, from um, uh, rapeseed in, in Germany, for example. And we have in our food systems enormous inefficiencies, waste and, and losses are very significant uh, that could um, be addressed uh, if we wanted to, um, to address this mismatch between supply and demand. But I repeat, I do not think, and many people do not believe, that the problem today is one of lack of supply. The problem is that some countries have been very heavily dependent on imports from Russia and Ukraine and find themselves now in an urgent need to find other suppliers. They may be India, they may be Canada, they may be the US, um, or they may be producers from within the EU, uh, but these countries need to find solutions. It's, it's, it's weird because, I mean, it's very clear from, for instance, uh, the situation with gas. Uh, like, I mean, it, it's about replacing Russia in the, in the current supply. And it's basically the same with food. We're talking about food price. You mentioned uh, inflation. Um, at the same time, all the measures adopted at, Euro, at the EU level, uh, both from the Commission and from member states, are, as we said before, focused on productivity. There are no uh, actions when it comes to social aspects, addressing social aspects. Again, we're not having risk of food shortages, but we probably could have on the midterm uh, problems for uh, low-income households uh, in Europe as well. Uh, so what's your take on the um, social action that can be done, uh, mm. that member states could, could do 
uh, but even country in the rest of the world, of course, because it's an issue in, in the North Africa as well. Uh, when it comes to addressing the social aspect and not only the you know, production of geopolitical aspects related to the production. Well, in many countries, low-income households are not protected from high food prices. And these countries have not invested in social protection schemes uh, so that um, the um, population that is impacted by high food prices um, um, will indeed um, um, find it very difficult to cope with this. And I have very serious worries for Egypt, for Lebanon, for Yemen. Um, these are populations already living under severe constraints. And in Lebanon, it's particularly uh, um, impressive to see how all the population has been impoverished by the loss of value of the Lebanese lira um, in uh, over the past couple of years. So these countries are in a difficult situation and there's no other answer than to provide humanitarian support to these countries. In countries that have in place social protection schemes, those should be um, um, used in order to shield the population from the impacts of high prices. Historically, um, it has been presented as an answer to low-income households to have low prices, but that is actually not serving these populations' needs. What we know is that in countries such as Europe, um, diabetes, um, um, cardiovascular diseases linked to obesity and unhealthy foods are particularly affecting low-income households because low-cost food uh, was the solution uh, pre-proposed to them. That is not true. Low-cost food, low-cost options should not be a substitute for decent wages and robust social protection schemes. Our countries should protect low-income households from the impacts of high prices, but the solution is not to dump uh, low-priced foods on those, on those populations. I just have one last question. Um, obviously, the, the main you know, policy tool, in the, coming back to the EU now, the main policy tool is the, the cap. Um, do you see that, because it seems to me that it's very limited in terms of its scope. I mean, it can mainly do things to do with production. Do you see that it's time for maybe a third pillar with more focus on social aspects as well on the cap, perhaps? Food production um, should not only incorporate the health and environment dimensions as it increasingly does, but also the, the, the question of purchasing power and social protection for the populations. And um, a, a comprehensive food policy, the one that a large number of social movements and civil society groups called for in 2018 and 2019, is one that includes this social dimension. In the Farm to Fork strategy announced by the European Commission in May 2020, that was not very visible. It was, um, although it was ambitious from the producer side to the end consumer, the social dimension was not present, uh, but it would have to be part of a, of a comprehensive food policy, such as the one that was demanded by social movements. So I'm actually particularly excited for this week's Flavor of the Week. Uh, it uh, lets my German heart beat faster because um, we're crazy about this here in Germany. Uh, I can tell you that asparagus season is finally upon us. So we'll be talking about asparagus today. And yeah, this is something we're absolutely crazy about in Germany, also in Austria. Uh, the Spargel-Saison, as we call it here, so asparagus season. 
is uh, absolutely core to our identity and culture. So uh, super important. Hmm. Uh, I never really knew this about Germany. No, I remember yeah, I, I did my Erasmus in Germany uh, and it was the spa, the really about Erasmus today. <laughs> season and they were basically in every corner of the street. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere you'll see little signs of restaurants advertising that they're doing asparagus now and uh, people will freak out about it and go go eat asparagus. There are also lots of uh, recipes uh, with uh, Spargel in, uh, in uh, Germany. Yeah, it's really like a Sunday dish, Sunday meal that you'd have for some nice white wine and everything. Uh, so we love it. Um, it's a whole thing. Now, uh, just to clarify, before we're accused of inaccuracy by some crazy German Spargel fans. Uh, it's true that in Germany, traditionally, asparagus season starts in mid-April, but this year we're actually a little early because of the warm weather, so it's already starting. Um, and I also just wanted to point out the different preferences on types, types of asparagus. So in English-speaking countries, uh, I've heard uh, green asparagus is preferred. I don't know if you can confirm that, Tash. Rather I can than... confirm. I can confirm. Okay. When I think of asparagus, I think of it as green. Yeah. But and in Germany, we in Germany we love the white one. I actually love Basically, the white one, I guess though. Even though <laughs> I do love the green ones. <laughs> we're very oh, inter international, intercultural. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So it's a big cultural craze, but um, there's also a bit of a darker side to it because asparagus is in large part harvested by seasonal workers, um, often from Eastern Europe. And unions and NGOs have uh, repeatedly criticized that they have to work under harsh conditions uh, for quite low wages. So it's a problem. Hmm. And talking about um, workers, um, the other problem is that if this inflow of workers, there's an interruption, then asparagus farms will have quite a big problem. And this was the case we saw with COVID when we had all the travel restrictions, um, when Germany even partially exempted seasonal workers from uh, from entry restrictions. And this is also could be again the case this year because of the war in Ukraine where a significant amount of workers are actually from. Um, so farmers have have called oh, to, to ease work relations, to make it easier for them to find workers. Other stakeholders are saying that actually the repeated problems we're seeing with seasonal work reveals kind of a more systemic problem. Um, and, you know, talking about like the pressure to reduce production costs as much as possible by finding workers willing to work you know, under problematic conditions, as you were talking about, you know, difficult conditions, low wages. And at the same time, there are also examples of people trying to make uh, make the best out of the situation. So in Slovakia, the largest agricultural organization has set up forms to help farms recruit refugees from Ukraine who want to work on farms. So according to the farmers uh, union there, many farms are ready to offer accommodation, uh, not only for the workers themselves, but also their families. This is the most social uh, flavor of the week, actually. Yeah. It's very serious. I, is, I'm yeah. supposed to say my usual uh, stupid <laughs> things now. I, I don't know. You usually find a way. I'm going to expose you, you and Julia. So what? Actually, for, for our listeners, of course, yeah, me and Tash, we are in the same room and Julia is in the so. Expose me to, to uh, I can't yeah. say that. <laughs> and um, I'm going to expose your lack of knowledge of EU offices. Because yeah. do you know what the CPVO is and what they do? 
do I want to know? CPVO. CPVO, you can't Google, even if I don't see you. Committee of, no. Oh, it's clearly, it's like you people, it's like. Organization. Office. Oh, office. So <laughs> the CPVO is the Community Plant Variety Office. Uh, it's basically, there's a system that grants uh, intellectual property rights to new plant varieties. Uh, and this is basically the, the system called the Community Plant Variety Right. It's very similar to a patent. And uh, again, once uh, a, pro, a, a variety is given this, um, this um, CPVR, uh, is valid in all the 27 uh, member states. So there's this European agency that is basically um, managing the, this um, CPVO. And uh, it's, actually, it's located in France, in uh, Angers. And, um, and basically, breeders receive this single intellectual property right uh, that um, it's it's valid for a period of 25 years. But some products, this is my big curiosity this week, uh, some products have um, the an extension from 25 to 30 years and uh, very um, surprise, asparagus is one of the fewest products that... Uh, have this uh, extended um, extended uh, patent. So basically, this is my very niche. Um, yeah. uh, and actually, have an, also another niche nerdy. Niche and nerdy. Just like you like it. Yeah. <laughs> and I have another uh, curiosity about uh, sparrows at the EU level. There was a complaint by, actually, by the German NGO uh, NABU. Um, arrived at the commission level because they basically. Uh, there was an asparagus cultivation uh, under foil, so it's you know it's in plastic or like uh, uh, foil greenhouses, and it was um, in a bird protection area uh, situated in the you know uh, Nat- Natura 2000 site called the Mittler Haven Havenniederung. Uh, which is in the Brandenburg and uh, in Brandenburg region uh, or state. And uh, yeah, so basically the commission opened this, uh, I mean, received this complaint. Uh, We don't know how it ended because actually it's not public. I mean, uh, the commission doesn't have really investigative powers, basically um, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's 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 good um, uh, good relationship with the countries and uh, and uh, and so on. And in 2017, actually, the investigation was still ongoing, uh, and could the commission could actually only um, ask the, the the member state uh, some kind you know using the moral suasion or the soft power to make them complain in case they find uh, um, uh, an infringement of the, uh, in this case, the the legislation was Natura 2000. And that's all for me. So that's all from us this week. And this week, like every week, the Euractive Agri-Food podcast was produced by Euractive's Agri-Food news team. That's Natasha Foote, Gerardo Fortuna and Julia Daum with the technical support of Evie Chiori. 
This podcast is also available on all the major streaming platforms such as Amazon, Stitcher, uh, Spotify and Apple. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Julia Dam. Thanks for listening and see you next week.